This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The pitch, a swing and a drive, deep left field. Welcome to the Countdown to Opening Day show, presented by Amron. That ball's hit hard and deep to left field, backing to the track, to the wall. And the Countdown to Opening Day Show, presented by Amron. Wainwright picks out the sign. The pitch is swung on a miss. Throw to second base. Strike him out. Throw him out. Double play. On the Cardinals Radio Network. It is time for another edition of the Countdown to Opening Day Show across the Cardinals Radio Network. Alongside of Mike Claiborne, I'm Matt Pauley, and we're in two different spots this week. Mike, you are uh, on the Cardinal Cruise right now, and uh, that sounds like it's a whole lot of fun. Yeah, it's, it's always a lot of fun. It's good to visit with you. We are in uh, Jamaica today in, in part of the evening. For those who don't know, the Cardinals have had this cruise going on for, gosh, it's been a long time. And this year, our cruisers are former Cardinals. Well, they, guys that play for Cardinals, Danny Cox, Tom Pagnaz, Tom Lawless, Kerry Robinson, and uh, King. And so we have about 200 Cardinal fans who come on the cruise, and we do a Q&A, and we get a chance to talk up with them, uh, fans, and we have a couple of other events that we do, an autograph session, a photo session. And uh, we just, you know, hang out. Got the news earlier this week that former Cardinals third baseman Scott Rowland was selected for induction into the Hall of Fame. Uh, what did you think when you heard that news? I was really happy. Um, you know, Scott had some really good years as a Cardinal, had some good years with Philadelphia. And, you know, I think that's the, the one position that has the fewest Hall of Fame members mm-hmm. is third base. Uh, that's going to change here in the next few years when you think about a guy like Beltray who will be up for next year. Knowing Arnold's going to be up one year, Manny Machado could be another guy. There's going to be a lot of guys there. But I thought during his time, before his injury started setting, he was the best third baseman in the game. And I think that's what you have to vote on. What they did then. You know, I think that they won't do it, but I think baseball, they need to change how they do this, this, this Hall of Fame induction thing. Because you have writers who vote who didn't even see Scott Rowan play. Yeah or didn't see him play enough, and then you have other people who still vote who don't even cover the games. I, I really think that they ought to have a weighted system where if you were covering these players on a regular basis, and I think your vote should mean more than some small who's going to go online and just see what a guy's war is and think that's all you need to do in order to tell you whether he's a Hall of Famer or not. You know, I also think that they ought to look at the players, especially Hall of Famers, their votes should be weighted. I mean, uh, it takes one, no one. And I, I think that the way it's done now, we have some people, some of the voters who made this more about themselves yep. than the players. You know, because face it, I, I thought Andrew Jones, I think he's a Hall of Famer. I mean, he was as good of a center fielder as anybody in his era. And there's a couple of other, Billy Wagner, you know, was as good of a left-handed reliever as there was in his era. And, you know, we, we kind of overlooked that. And, and I think that because we have so many people, they've reduced the number of people 
But there's so many people who didn't even see these players play or cover them that have an equal vote. And that, that's not right. I get a little emotional about this because I know what getting to the Hall of Fame means to these individuals. These are human beings, and this is a very emotional thing, and it's a really cool thing for them. And I get upset when somebody who wants to have some sort of self-righteous narrative decides that they're going to put that in front of something which is one of the greatest moments that any of these individuals will ever have. It really bothers me. I could agree with you more, man. I mean, that, that's one of the things that really bugs me on why guys, they want to make a statement. Hey, make the statement and, and, and make the vote, okay? Let's not, you know, like, who's the one guy that didn't vote for Jeter? I mean, you know, again, going back to what you said, uh, these guys get caught on their high horse, man, and they're, they're doing it for all the wrong reasons. And I don't know how you change that because, you know, the, the writers' association, the ones who've been charged with installment of players, but I think some of these guys missed the boat, and I don't know what you do about it because there's a lot of good players that are Hall of Fame worthy that won't get in. Now on the other side of that coin, and we were having this discussion with the guys you know, on the cruise the other day. There's some guys who haven't helped themselves, whether it's Jeff Kent or A. Rod and other guys, and certainly Barry Bonds. You know, and it's unfortunate, but their relationship with the media is one of the reasons why they're not in. Yeah. And I'm not sure if that's always the right way to do it. But you know what? I, I Because and I think it was Tom Pagnazzi made the point. He said, if you think that their guys that didn't cheat are in the Hall of Fame, he said, there's some guys who cheated, much like the guys that are suspected of cheating that are in the Hall of Fame. But my, my point is, he's right. But I think the fact that he hit those guys had better relationships with the voters than the guys who aren't in. You know, I mean, there's some guys that probably should should have been in well before now. One last because they didn't cooperate or weren't as congenial to writers or media. You know, they kind of got this stain about them. Yeah. Uh, One last thing on the Hall of Fame and. You mentioned Andrew Jones, and I'm with you on that. To bring that back to the Cardinals, though, I find it really interesting that Andrew Jones is getting, what, 58% of the vote, and Jim Edmonds, who largely had the same profile, a very, very good defensive center fielder, maybe a top-five defensive center fielder of all time, was on the ballot for, for just one year. And that's where we just see the inconsistency in all of this. Yeah, you're right. That's a good point to make. And there's some other guys who, because they didn't get enough votes early didn't make the ballot again. And, and again, I really think they got to take a long look at this thing. There's got to be a better way to assess a player's skill level, skill level to be uh, a Hall of Famer. And how they do it, they ought to talk about it. But the problem is you're going to have some guys who feel like their power be, will be diminished, and therefore they don't want to relinquish that. So they want to keep it as it is. They think their, their system is, is better than anybody else's, and it's not right. A lot of guys out there like that. He's Mike Claiborne on the Cardinals Cruise. I'm Matt Pauley. We'll take a break. We've got a lot more coming up over these next two hours. This is Countdown to Opening Day on the Cardinals Radio Network. 
It's the Countdown to Opening Day show across the Cardinals radio network. My name is Matt Pauley as we continue to get closer and closer and closer, not just to opening day, but pitchers and catchers are going to be reporting before we know it. Spring training games are going to be going on. There's just a lot that's going to be taking place. But once we do get to the point that the season is underway, you should know the group tickets are on sale now and groups of 20 or more receive great incentives including a discount off the gate price in most seating areas group tickets are a great way to fundraise entertain clients or reconnect with family and friends for more details visit cardinals.com groups or call 314-345-9000 we got fantastic news on tuesday when we heard that former cardinals third baseman scott Rowland had been selected for induction into the baseball hall of fame he did a Zoom call with uh, members of the media, wanted to go through a few of the things that uh, he had to uh, say. And uh, he started by talking about kind of the year-over-year process because when he was first on the ballot, he was on about 10% of the ballots. And then over the course of the six years that he was eligible, he eventually was able to get up to above the 75% that he needed. And he talked about uh, what it was like going year after year and just watching those numbers continue to move in an upward direction. There was actually never a point in my life that I thought I was going to be a Hall of Fame baseball player. <laughs> so I think we can start there. Um, and then, you know, when, when you know, never did I think I was going to get drafted, never think going to play in the major leagues, never going to be whatever, you know. And then certainly when I make the ballot, you know, it's a great honor at that time. And, and what was funny is I was coaching my son's basketball team at the time, and we were sitting in the parking lot the very first time through. Mm-hmm. And he was probably in fourth grade or fifth grade or whatever. And we were going to go have a horrendous practice, you know, just set up. And we were waiting and we were listening on the radio before we went in. And he was asking me a bunch of questions. And I said, I have to, I need 5%. And that's all I need. His his name's Finn. And he's like, dad, I think you're getting in. I'm like, Oh man, I don't think so. But uh, that was Chipper Jones, Jim Tomey, you know, uh, Trevor, I was a big ballot. Right. And so, um, I didn't know a lot about the system at the time uh, for quite a while. And, and at that time, you know, it came up, I think, what, 10.7 or something like that. And we heard that I was 10.7. I was still on. And he says to me, did we win? I said, oh, we won. Yes, we won. And so we went in and had a horrendous practice that I set up and it was successful uh, with fourth grade basketball. And then, you know, came out and then the next year went to 17 or whatever it was. And, and with another big ballot and, and just moved along the way, you know, no thoughts, no expectations, um, but started maybe gaining a little more interest in the process. I didn't know a lot about the process. Um, and I got to a point where actually I'll throw, I'll throw what last year, two years ago, last year, two years ago, uh, Larry Walker, uh, and, and Gary Bennett, uh, introduced me to Ryan Spader, who, you know, is a numbers guy and, and, uh, we've been in contact and he kind of educated me on the process and what happens and war and the numbers. I didn't know any of that, you know, and he's like, they help you, dude. And I'm like, well, then I love them, <laughs> you know? So it was just a growing interest, I think. He began his career in Philadelphia and had a lot of great success there, including winning a rookie of the year. But he really didn't start winning at a high level until he got to St. Louis, getting to two World Series and winning one of them. He was asked about what it meant for his career on making that move to St. Louis. The biggest thing about St. Louis is that, that there were just seasoned professional veterans there at the time that you know, you could really learn from overnight. And and that was, it was a, it was a veteran team. It was an older team. They'd been around, they'd competed together for a long time. So 
that was a great thing in my career that I think I was ready for, you know, kind of pushing for, for six years pretty hard and, and young and not knowing what I'm doing. And then all of a sudden, you know, we, we didn't have much success in, in Philadelphia, but we had, we had good players and, you know, Bobby Abreu and obviously Schilling was there and, and Rico Brown and a bunch of guys, you know, but, you know, we, I kind of got traded to a championship team or at least a caliber championship team. And, and what I found out, they, they were veteran guys and their mindset was a little different than mine. You know, I went to the ballpark at three o'clock because I was supposed to go to the ballpark at three o'clock. You know, they, they went to the ballpark at three o'clock because they were going to do their job. And I'm like, oh man, okay. You know, this is this is a different this is a different thing for me. And 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 as it my time went through, especially in 04 with with Soup and Carp and and you know Matt Moore and the, all these guys, we were all about the same age. Um, we had uh, similar situations. We were married. We were raising families, and and it was just a fun time for our wives, fun time for us. And you know, we really competed well together. Um, at that time, I. I after the 04, when we got swept by the Red Sox, I told my wife after that that in the offseason, I said, I'm never going to win a World Series because I can't play on a better team than that talent-wise and certainly a more cohesive team. Like, that, that's as good a group inside the group as, as you could possibly have. And we got killed. And uh, we come back in 06, and, you know, it, it changed my mind about a lot of things. We got hot. We kind of backed in and we got hot and kind of ran the table. And it was, it was pretty impressive there too with, with a, with a good group, but not certainly not the 04 group. I forgot your question. Did I answer any of them? I just asked about what you were going through physically in 06 too, you know, out of the lineup and then to, to finish the way you did with that championship you chased. Yeah. Physically, physically in 06, um, 05 is when, when I had two surgeries um, on my shoulder and I was coming back and rehabbing and Albert got hurt early in the season, which prolonged stretches that I was playing. And, you know, I got at the end of it, at the end of 06, I kind of, you know, wore down a little bit and tried to stay out on the field. And, and, you know, that's when Tony and I decided to headbutt each other a little bit. And, uh, you know, it ended up, it ended up all the best, you know, for all of us. And, and, you know, we ended up winning a world championship in an unlikely situation. To me, it feels odd that it took this long for him to get into the hall of fame. And maybe I'm being a little bit too simple in what I'm saying here, but if you are say a top five player defensively at your position, and it is a premier defensive position like third bases, and then you follow that up with, pretty solid offensive numbers. Uh, you can you can make the case that Roland is a top five, maybe top three defensive third baseman of all time. You can make the same argument that he's top 10. Maybe if you really want to uh, find some other folks, a top 12 offensive third baseman of all time. Like You see those numbers and you put them together, and this is someone, to me, was always going to be a Hall of Famer. But it took him a little bit longer. And there's some talk about the third base position and why there are so few third basemen in the Hall of Fame. He did address that. Third basemen seem to be compared to shortstops, and he thinks it's a distinct, a different position, so to speak. And, and the third baseman, you know, you field, you hit, you drive runs in, and it's a position in its own. And, and maybe it's not an outfield position, but maybe it's an infield position with some distinction. But I don't have an actual opinion of mine. I'm just relaying to you kind of, you know, uh, what you're talking about, I think, and and uh, those are again, that's not my opinion, necessarily my words, but I, I, it's an interesting conversation to have, which I, I do understand and appreciate. I don't know the answer. 
again, he was a he was a solid offensive player. There was nothing wrong with his offense. His offense doesn't get him into the Hall of Fame, but it helps the argument a little bit when you look at the uh, defense first. And he made it pretty clear that he had uh, pride in the things that he did other than just hitting. I took pride in defense and base running. I thought those were two aspects that I could really contribute uh, on a daily basis on the field is if I could get on base, I felt like I could use it offensively. And, and, you know, in my head, you know, when I, when you get on base, you're trying to score a run. I mean, that's, that's the idea. We're not, it, this is just my head again. I'm not trying, I'm trying to move around the bases in a, in a technique that gets, puts me in the best position for our team to score a run um, and, and to have a good at bat. So I, I would fight through at bats and it was a struggle and I'd spend a lot of time in the cage and maybe too much, time and beat myself up but defensively and base running I felt like I contribute daily and then the last thing from uh, Roland he talked about his upbringing and he's somebody you know the Cardinals country is southern Indiana I was on a Cardinals caravan a couple weeks ago we made our way into uh, Evansville southern Indiana there are a lot of Cardinal fans and there's a lot of Scott Roland fans and he just talked about his upbringing both from uh, where he grew up and also uh, the way he was raised inside of his family and what that uh, did for him in terms of making him the baseball player that he would become I'm from Jasper Indiana I'm from southern Indiana it's a hard working community you know that values you know hard work and and going to work and getting your job done and doing things right and treating people hopefully well and and with respect on top of that i am ed and linda Rowland's son um and my brother todd and my sister christy's brother and that didn't fly in our house it's just kind of the way we were brought up and lived and and we had responsibilities and you know it's just there's no better childhood that I could have come up with. I mean, how I was raised, I I aspired to raise my children in some sort of capacity that mom and dad did. And we talk about it with mom and dad. They don't even know what we're talking about, which I guess is the humility aspect of, of, of what it is. But you know, they're, they're kind of actions actions over words type people, and that's how we're brought up. So, again, congratulations going to Scott Rowland, a well-deserved honor. It took too long, but it doesn't really matter how long it takes as long as it happens. Indeed, it does happen for Scott Rowland as he makes his way into the Hall of Fame. We'll take a break. We have a lot more to get to. This is the Countdown to Opening Day show on the Cardinals Radio Network. It's the countdown to opening day show across the Cardinals radio network. Be one of the first fans to catch the Cardinals in 2023 at spring training. Cardinals vacations makes it easy to get to warm, sunny Jupiter, Florida by being your one-stop shop for spring training travel. Make your plans today. Call Cardinals vacations at 800-892-7687 or online at cardinals.com slash vacations. We continue our conversation about Scott Rowland. We found out earlier in this week he has been selected for induction into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Right now, happy to welcome on to the program. He is a senior writer for Fan. His name's Jay Jaffe. You follow him on Twitter at J underscore J-A-F-F-E. Jay, thanks so much for your time. When you found out uh, that Roland was a Hall of Famer, what was your reaction? I let out a big whoop. Um, <laughs> I, I might have killed a houseplant. I yelled so loud. <laughs> uh, really, going going right up to the point when uh, Josh Rowich pulled the pulled the, uh, um, the the results out of the envelope, I thought we were going to get a shutout, our second in three years. Uh, so I was more than pleasantly surprised. Uh, that Roland did get there based on the the pre-election ballot tracking. Um, There was a glimmer of hope Tuesday afternoon, but that was after uh, days of pessimism that we we were going to get anybody in there. Um, It's fantastic. I mean, you know, he's got uh, 
uh, he's rallied from the lowest to, to produce the lowest uh, uh, first-year percentage of any player ever elected by the writers, 10.2%. Uh, he's a guy who my system has uh, strongly supported uh, since the outset. Uh, somebody showed me um, a uh, the title page of my Cooperstown casebook, which came out in 2017. And in 2017, I, I signed a book for a guy that said, we'll get, into, we'll get Scott Rowland into Cooperstown someday. Um, <laughs> And, uh, he, you know, I had forgotten about that, but wow, uh, that was neat to come back. This is a guy who I've been, been stumping for. And, and so to have uh, one of those players get in, um, you know, against the odds uh, really, really feels great. I'm, I'm happy for Roland, of course. I'm happy for uh, his fans. Uh, I'm happy for baseball. I'm happy for Cooperstown uh, because I think it would have been kind of a sad little celebration uh, if all we had next summer uh, getting inducted. Uh, was Fred McGriff. You just don't draw the same kinds of crowds uh, with an era committee guy getting elected the way you do when somebody gets in off the writer's ballot and, uh, uh, you know, fans are a little bit younger and maybe a little bit more motivated to travel. There is some nuance to all of this. Uh, Scott even talked about in his media session yesterday about how sometimes third basemen get lumped in with short stops and maybe that doesn't uh, make their defense look as impressive. But he's a he's a top three to top five defensive third baseman of all time. He's probably a, a top 10 to top 12 offensive third baseman of all time. Like Those numbers tell you he should have been a Hall of Famer before now. But he wasn't like what's go. What's happening as you view it with the writers, where they're uh, not quite as eager to put uh, somebody with a Scott Rowland profile in. Yeah, you know this goes back actually to the Cooper's Ten Casebook, which I just mentioned. Um, the cornerstone, or one of the cornerstones of that, was the case of Ron Santo, who was unjustly overlooked by the writers and became, uh, you know, one of my earliest causes. Uh, eventually elected by the Veterans Committee. Uh, posthumously, unfortunately. Um, voters have had a very hard time balancing the offensive and defensive demands of the position, uh, which, to be fair, have, have changed over time. You know, in uh, in the early 20th century and then the 19th century, you know, bunting was a much bigger part of the game, and uh, being a third baseman required uh, a skill level, I think, that's probably closer to where we put second baseman defensively these days. Um, you know, you needed to be uh, – it was a, more, of a, more of a glove-first position – um, with lighter hitters, but over time, you know, as the bunt has has diminished in importance, that's changed. It's it's a heavy hitter spot, but it's also you know one that still has a lot of defensive responsibility. And I think, really, you know, voters have have kind of uh, underappreciated that the difficulty of of getting those two things together. You might have it's it's a lot of like lower average batting average guys with a lot of power and secondary skills on base percentage, base running even. Uh, I think of Greg Nettles and his 240 batting averages, but man, could he play uh, the hot corner? And Scott Rowland's, you know, kind of in that mold. I mean, he was never one of the best hitters in the league, period. And I think he suffers maybe from being a contemporary of Chipper Jones, who was mm-hmm. uh, legitimately one of the best hitters in the league. Uh, but Rowland's defense, like you said, elite, uh, and that and that combination with very good offense was just. So much better. And now that we have wins above replacement, we can get a you know quantify estimates of a player's offensive and defensive value. Uh, we can uh, better appreciate uh, the kind of impact that that players like Roland had. All right. So y- you analyze these ballots. You see the numbers that are coming back in. There's clearly a a contingent of Hall of Fame voters 
who, when they put in their ballot, they're, there's, they're trying to push forward their own narrative. Some, it's more about them than the players. And I don't know how many of those people there are. I don't think there's that many, but there's there's obviously a few. And like I, I look at Todd Helton just barely missing out by 11 votes, and all I can think to myself is those individuals who kind of put themselves in front of the process might have cost him a chance for, for the Hall of Fame this year. Do you think, am, am I right in saying that? Are there a lot of guys like that out there, a lot of individuals like that out there voting? Unfortunately, there are still some. We had eight um, eight uh, voters return blank ballots, and those blank ballots count count against every player's percentage. Um, we had let's see here. I have this at my fingertips here. If I could just get the window, um, we had a bunch of one player seven one player ballots too. But I don't believe any of those uh, had Todd Helton as as their one player. So yeah, collectively, uh, those two blocks did. Uh, prevent Roland from getting elected. Not, it was not just the blank ballots, but it, but it, but the one the one man ballots. And yeah, I, I think I can understand some at times the impulse to file a protest vote, uh, leaving everybody off. Um, I can you know, but I do think that when you when you come up when you look at that ballot and come up with like one one man is your answer, one candidate is your answer, your process is almost certainly irredeemably flawed. I don't see how you can arrive at that answer and, and and tell the world with a straight face that you have figured it out. And I'm thinking of one yesterday. It was Gary Sheffield. Mm-hmm. I love Gary Sheffield. I've voted for Gary Sheffield three times so far in the three years I've had the ballot. But he's like, Gary Sheffield, hashtag no debate. Like, <laughs> you're going to have to do better than that if you're going to sell this, sell this to the general public here, buddy. Um, so, yeah, I think there are voters who grandstand, who, who do make it about themselves, and that's unfortunate. But... Um, you know, in the end, uh, Scott Rowland made the biggest jump. I mean, uh, sorry, Todd Helton made the biggest jump of any candidate on the ballot, 20 points. He's in a better position going into his sixth year, which will be next year, than Rowland was coming into his sixth year this year. Um, and he's uh, the equivalent of a gimme putt away. So he's going in, um, and I'm excited about that. Uh, I don't look at this as a sad day for, for, for Todd Helton at all. And likewise, Billy Wagner and you know, some of these other guys who, uh, you know, got past 50 percent and, and, and have uh, sunny outlooks in the long term. Who's the, the guy or the couple guys that are kind of the, the biggest snubs right now for you, the guys who are, are most worthy of getting in? Well, you know, looking beyond just the writer's thought, uh, Dick Allen. Uh, is 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 number one for me now that Manny Minoso is has been elected. Um, it's a travesty that Allen has come up one vote short on the various air committees uh, the last two times, and that he is uh, uh, unfortunately no longer with us to appreciate uh, uh, his election uh, because he's worthy of it. Um, Lou Whitaker, Bobby Gritch, other guys uh, from the air committees. Um, you know, on these ballots, uh, you know, I think we're built the, the ones that, are, that I think are. You know, quote unquote snubs are guys that we're building towards. I mean, I think, you know, uh, and Andrew Jones, Todd Helton, um, Gary Sheffield, uh, Carlos Beltran. Uh, you know, these are these are all guys I regard as worthy, and and I think you know, I'm, I'm hopeful in time you get them all there. Um, beyond that, boy, there's Negro Leagues candidates too. Yeah, uh, I'm not the uh, I'm not the expert on that on that area. I, I do the best I can to try to keep up and had a lot of fun writing about those guys for the 2021 uh, early days ballot. But uh, um, I know that there's, there's definitely some guys in there that, uh, that we need to get into. 
There are some guys leaving baseball that feel like they're going to be very early on into the Hall of Fame once their eligibility comes in. I mean, obviously in St. Louis, we think about Albert Pujols. Yadier Molina is going to be a Hall of Famer at some point. Is there pressure to get some more of these guys in right now before maybe that ballot starts to fill up once again? Well, it's going to fill up next year. Um, We've got Adrian Beltre. Uh, who's a, a slam dunk uh, guy because he's got the 3,000 hits and a, you know, a, a defensive reputation that's uh, um, even beyond uh, or, or at least alongside Rollins. Uh, we've got Joe Maurer, uh, outstanding catcher, uh, three-time batting champion, MVP, short career but uh, very high peak. Um, Chase Utley, outstanding defender and all-around player. Um, he's going to be a bit of a tougher sell. Uh, but, uh, you know, That'll fill up, and then we've got Ichiro the year after that, um, you know, and there's some pressure to get uh, um, Wagner and Sheffield uh, in before their, t- their their time gets up. So I don't think we're going to run out of, uh, <laughs> of of debates and candidates here in the, in, in the near future. Um, you know, but by the time, you know, by the time Pujols gets on, the landscape will look a little bit different here um, because uh, I think – you know, most of these guys are now in the back half of, of, of their candidacies here, uh, or will be, and that uh, it means that, that they, w- they won't be competing directly with with, with a Pujols or a Molina. We can all assume that Albert's going to get in on his first year. Do you think there's much of a chance that Yachty gets in in his first year? That's a good question. I, you know, I think his candidacy has a chance of being a polarizing one. Uh, I've uh, fought my battles with St. Louis fans. Uh, over the years regarding his candidacy. But here's the thing, and I, this is important to me and my process. We have a wealth of pitch framing data from this period that may end up being a finite period with the introduction of the automatic ball and strike system. Um, but it certainly uh, tells us that Yadi and Molina and, and, and also uh, Buster Posey uh, added significant value uh, to um, – uh, to the you know the other skills that we are more easily able to measure, uh, and that data deserves uh, its spot in the Hall of Fame discussion. And I would also say we have to look at uh, uh, Brian McCann and Russell Martin, two guys who did not get quite the uh, widespread acclaim of those two. I mean, Posey's the one who was the MVP here, uh, but all those guys uh, were very valuable players and maybe a little bit uh, underappreciated. Uh, for their for their framing and their defensive skills, and I think you know even if this is, ends up being something that uh, uh, pitch framing something that, that's outmoded uh, in the future, we need to consider that. And when you look at that, Yadier Molina, he's probably you know he's probably a Hall of Famer. I don't think I'm uh, as strong on him as some people. Um, I'm much more gung ho about Buster Posey, even given the short career and higher offense. But I do think that the Molina is going to get in eventually, um, and I don't think it's going to be a huge fight. He is Jay Jaffe, senior writer. Fangraphs mentioned his book, the Cooperstown Casebook. Do you see a, a bump in sales around this time of the year of that book? You know, unfortunately, uh, the book's been out six years. I don't really get very current sales data, uh, but it's nice to stump it. I do uh, at the local bookstore where I sign my books uh, every holiday season. Uh, I get a nice. Uh, uh, a nice little batch, but um, in terms of nationwide sales, I have no idea. And uh, um, unfortunately, the world is not beating a path to my door uh, to generate uh, uh, interest in a second copy or a second version. Uh, that's hopefully somewhere down the road. I know now that I probably won't have to put in a full a full length Scott Rowland chapter, though. Fair enough. Fair enough. Jay, thank you so much for your time and your insight. This was really fun. All right, sure thing. Thanks a lot.
Jay Jaffe joining us here on the Cardinals Radio Network. We'll take a break, and when we return, are you thinking about maybe getting a season ticket package for the upcoming season? We'll tell you all about it. That's next. This is Countdown to Opening Day on the Cardinals Radio Network. Countdown to opening day show does continue across the Cardinals radio network. Very happy right now to uh, welcome in. He is the director of uh, ticket sales and retention with the Cardinals. His name is Rob Fasholt. He is a busy guy with the season right around the corner. Rob, thank you so much for taking some time with us. How are you? I'm doing well, Matt. Thanks for having me. And uh, so glad that we could get a chance to talk a little bit about uh, all the great season ticket packages we have here with the St. Louis Cardinals. Yeah, that's uh, this is the time of year where people are getting more and more excited about the season getting underway, and I'm sure there's people every year who are trying to make the decisions, hey, you know what, I go to so many games each year and I buy so many single-game tickets, maybe it would just make sense to go ahead and get some type of a season ticket package. So what what's the, uh, what's the reason to do that for those people who do go to a fair number of games each year but have never uh, gone all in on the season ticket package? Uh, what are the reasons for going ahead and moving forward with that? Well, I've, I've worked for this organization now for 13 years, and uh, one of the consistent pieces of feedback I received from fans is uh, they think that we're sold out of season tickets, or they think that uh, going to all home games is the only way to become a real season ticket holder. And I have to sort of break that down for people, and I'm happy to do that with you today, Matt. Uh, season tickets does not have to mean coming to every game uh, or even every series. Um, you can come to as low as 25 games, and for as low as $500, you can become a season ticket holder with the St. Louis Cardinals. Um, you can guarantee your postseason access with that. You can have opening day access with your ticket packages uh, and other benefits like a season ticket holder pre-sale that we do for any big concerts that come to town or any other uh, postseason games that we play, complimentary Cardinals Museum membership, uh, which includes gifts from the museum as well as free entry into the museum for the entire year, uh, and a dedicated account executive, somebody who the season holder can reach out to to uh, add some tickets if they have some family coming in town that weekend or maybe get a ticket reprinted if they if they happen to, to lose it. Uh, we can do all of that uh, with our season ticket holders. And again, it's uh, as low as 25 games and $500 to become a season ticket holder. Okay, so you can do it at 25 games. What about locations? Can you can you get season tickets just about anywhere in the ballpark? Almost everywhere. We have season tickets uh, in, in what I would say are traditional areas, behind home plate on the first and third base side in the lower levels, even seats uh, in those same areas in our Redbird Club in the 200 level. Uh, season tickets and our bleachers tend to be probably our cheapest option to access the season ticket package, but we offer season tickets on the 300 level, the 400 level. We try to find a, a price and a package that makes sense for every one of our fans. The, the perks that go along with it, and you alluded to some of them, whether it's a, a pre-sale for a really cool show that's going to be coming in or a concert, uh, the opportunity to always be at opening day, the opportunity to always have access to, to playoff tickets, that's a, that's a really valuable thing for, for people who go to a lot of games every year. And again, it all comes back down to you can do it for as few as 25 games a season. Matt, I've always looked at what we do in ticket sales is a way to help people make memorable moments that are going to last a lifetime with, with their family, with their loved ones, with their friends. And when you think of memorable moments here at Bush stadium, 
I think of opening days in years past where uh, a new player or perhaps a, a retiring player gets an amazing ovation just to see those Clydesdales go around the warning track before the first game to know that our, our baseball season is upon us. And then the memorable moments that happen in the postseason. You can access and have guaranteed access to all of those moments with a season ticket package. You're right. My mom and I would go to opening day together every single year. It was my dad and I would go to tons of games, but for some reason it became a tradition where it was always me and my mom going to opening day, and I have such amazing memories of that. And uh, there's nothing better than being in Bush Stadium for for a playoff game. Uh, So this is an opportunity for people to to have those same types of memories. If people uh, do want to uh, find out more, if they want to go ahead and uh, move forward, what's the best way to uh, get in contact with uh, you and your entire team? Matt, have them and anybody listening, please go to cardinals.com. Check out all of our season ticket options and packages. Uh, If you want to call and speak to somebody over the phone, we have people here ready to speak, and that phone number is 314-345-9000. He is Rob Fasselt, the Director of Ticket Sales and Retention with the Cardinals. Rob, thank you so much for your time and the information. Thank you, Matt. Have a great day. That's Rob Fassel joining us as we do continue on with the countdown to opening day show here on the Cardinals Radio Network. We'll take a break. We have a lot more coming up. You don't want to go anywhere right here on the Cardinals Radio Network. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Starting to wrap up our number one of Countdown to Opening Day across the Cardinals Radio Network. Cardinals Nation Restaurant hosts the only official St. Louis Cardinals pregame party with a two-and-a-half-hour DJ-hosted all-you-can-eat, all-you-can-drink event before every home game. Tickets go on sale Friday, February 3rd at cardinals.com slash pregame. Our number two, we got a lot going on. Cardinals general manager Michael Gersh is going to be with, be with us. Excuse me. We'll also hear from uh, Cardinals broadcaster and former pitcher Ricky Horton. He's going to be with us uh, coming up as well. We are getting very close to turning the calendar literally and figuratively as we come up on uh, February. Do you have your official Cardinals calendar yet? I hope you do. If you don't, we might be able to hook you up with one right now. We're going to go back to our contest line, 314-955-1120. 314-955-1120. Let's go big. Let's make, uh, let's make sports producer extraordinaire Matt Pajeski work hard today. We'll go caller number 17. On the contest line, 314-955-1120, you pick up your own copy of the Cardinals calendar, which is so fantastically done. If you don't uh, happen to win one, you can pick them up at uh, Area Grocers. The Cardinals always do a fantastic job throughout their publications department, so make sure to check that out for yourself. But caller 17, 314-955-1120, you have yourself a Cardinals calendar. We will uh, take a break. When we return, we are going to hear from Cardinals General Manager Michael Gersh. Uh, We'll get his thoughts uh, on the offseason, also get his thoughts on the uh, selection for induction of Scott Rowland in the Baseball Hall of Fame. That's all up next. It's Countdown to Opening Day on the Cardinals Radio Network. 
Hour two of Countdown to Opening Day underway here across the Cardinals radio network. Are you looking for a truly unique event space? Cardinals special events can help to create memorable corporate and personal events in both Bush Stadium and Cardinals Nation Restaurant. For more information on options for an experience your guests won't stop talking about, visit cardinals.com slash events. We are very happy right now to welcome on the general manager of the St. Louis Cardinals. That is Michael Gersh. Michael, thank you for taking some time with us. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I am good. What was uh, what was your reaction? What was maybe the other reactions of people inside of uh, the Cardinals offices when you found out that Scott Rowland was going to be a Hall of Famer? Oh, I think it was. Uh, it's exciting. It's always exciting when someone who's spent some time here gets uh, gets honored like that. And um, I know Mo in particular. You know, I was around when Scott was here, but I was not uh, not hanging around the big league clubhouse at that time very much. I was more doing amateur scouting stuff. So I don't have a long relationship with Scott, though I've met him a few times. But I know Mo's. Uh, uh, considers him a friend, and I know Mo is very excited about it. So it's uh, a great honor for him. It, it seemed like it was going to happen one of these years, just wasn't obvious it was going to happen this year. But uh, nice, nice, uh, nice um, recognition of a great career. Would you like to see Hall of Fame voters value defense at third base maybe a little bit more than they do? Um, look, I, I got to be honest with you. Like, I don't. I'm not in the weeds on, on Hall of Fame voting and how they, how they. Uh, over the years, how they've transitioned from, you know, like round numbers, right? Mm -hmm. Round numbers of wins, home runs, uh, RBIs seem like drove uh, Hall of Fame voting for a long time to now being a little bit more uh, maybe data savvy. But I think, I I think third base is a weird position. It's, it's not seen as one of the like elite defensive positions up the middle of the field, but, but some, you know, some guys are incredible defenders at third base and add a ton of value. You know, we have one now in, in Nolan and, uh, when Scott was here for for many years, he was the same way, and I think uh, I think sometimes it's looked at as more of an offensive position. But but the guys who are great defensive third basemen, you know, it's making a huge difference in your team. And I, it's possible that that's undervalued by the Hall of Famers for sure. What is this period like for you guys, where you've kind of done the heavy lifting of the off season, but I know at the same time you never close the door to making the team better. Yeah, it's it's a little bit of a, a transition period where we sort of are starting to transition from the off season into spring training into the beginning of the amateur scouting season into um, just, you know, beginning the player development process and, and those seasons. Um, to your point, we're, we're always looking. We're, we're still talking to teams from every now and then. There's still guys on waivers and, and other opportunities, and obviously there's still a few free agents still out there. Um, so it's, it's different than sort of early in the offseason where you're really, you know, trying to stay in touch with all 29 teams and, and, and tons of free agents and tons of agents and have lots of balls in the air. Now it's a little bit more, you know, sparse in the conversations and, and a few that might spark something that have a chance to, to come to fruition. Um, and, and, uh, you know, a lot that sort of don't really go anywhere. Um, but as, as a front office, we sort of, a lot of our time is now starting to prepare for the 2023 season and, and less about, uh, the off season acquisition process specifically to the amateur side of things. Has that turned into a 12 month a year thing? Um, it's pretty close. It's pretty close. You know, um, we, we don't, we do some, sort of January, like sort of prep meetings here in town uh, this week. And, you know, I had some conversations with guys where we talked about, like, if you, if you're a high school player in, in Florida or, or Arizona or Southern California, they're already playing high school baseball, or at least, at least maybe not official season games, but they're having all season scrimmages and practices. And so our scouts are already out, you know, sort of laying the groundwork on, on that. And, and certainly, the draft is in July now, a month later than it used to be, which sort of stretches out this 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 process. 
And then as soon as this process happens in July, we immediately start scouting the summer leagues and the Cape Cod League. And so it's it's probably not 12 months, but it's, it's probably like, you know, nine or 10 before it kind of gets quiet for November and December. Do you enjoy the challenge? In other sports, there's not a linear path, but there's there's a more kind of concrete kind of way to, to get to the highest levels of the sport. In baseball, there's so many different pathways that guys can take coming straight out of high school, going junior college, going to a four-year, going junior college. To, like there's, there's a million different ways, and you find guys at, at different stages of their development. Is that fun for, for you and, and your staff? Yeah, I think I think that's part of the challenge, right? I think I think what scouts look, every scout hopes to have a, a first round pick, you know, go to the high school next, you know, down the street because it means that they they'll they'll know the guy well, they they can scout him easily and all that. But um, you know, again, when we had these meetings this week, one of our one of our scouts talked about scouting Mount Olive College and finding Cody Whitley, who had been uh, had Tommy John surgery, you know, the year before, missed a year had only come back and made three appearances that year. He happened to be at one of them, you know, to be at a college game in Mount Olive and see a kid throwing 95 that you didn't even know existed before you walked into this park that day is that's what they live for, right? It's finding guys and uncovering, uncovering the, the sort of hidden gems. And I think we've, you know, organizationally, we've kind of made a living off of, you know, rounds, you know, five through 15 or whatever with guys like Carpenter and, and, you know, Tommy Edmond and Donovan and Lars Newbar and that, that's, I think, what, you know, in some ways is almost more fun than going to see the number one player in the country who's been a superstar at some SEC school for three years and everyone knows who he is. And it's sort of a, it's not as much of a, you don't get the butterflies and excitement of having discovered someone who, who can make a difference. Cardinals general manager Michael Gersh continuing to uh, to chat with us. I think a lot of people hear your title. They know they know Mo's title as president of baseball operations, but I also think there's maybe some confusion in what what it looks like in your guys' working relationship. Can you kind of describe that for our listeners a little bit of how you and Mo work together? Yeah, I think – I mean, look. Everyone knows Mo's the Mo's the main guy. He's he's the head of baseball operations. He has been for I don't know, fifteen seasons now, maybe sixteen seasons. Um, and and I've been you know starting in 2011, I got promoted to assistant GM and and was sort of Mo's right hand man. And that's sort of been my role for the last decade. And in in some cases, we split things up and and you know like separate our our sort of work responsibilities in most cases we are very much working together on things so there are cases where there are certain agents i have relationships with and there's many agents especially the the guys who've been around for a while that mo has had long-term relationships with and so when we want to approach a free agent or approach a player about an extension we'll, we'll sort of decide who makes more sense to start that process there's um there's certain teams that mo has you know Someone like the Yankees with with Cashman, Mo and Cashman have both been in charge of their respective organizations for, you know, 15 years or 20 years. So when we talk Yankees, sometimes Mo just picks up the phone and calls Cash. And there's other teams where I have relationships with guys who have, you know, are newer in the role, and so I I follow up with those and start the trade talks on, in those cases. Um, and then within, you know, our our sort of internal operations, you know, I, I'm my background is on the analytics side, so I sort of. Um, and much more involved in our baseball development analytics group. You know, Mo's background is more on the uh, has has been around longer with the player development side, so he works a little bit more closely with Gary LaRock. But it's it's not like we it, it's much more of we work as a team on things, and not so much that we have like you know clear silos that this this is my part of the organization and this is Mo's part. I mean, the whole thing is Mo's part, and I and I jump in where it makes sense to to make an impact and try to keep moving us forward.
there were parts of this offseason that were just wild, whether it was the money that was being thrown around, the years that were being thrown around. Do you guys ever just kind of look at each other and look at some of these deals and just go, you know, in almost shock of maybe the direction that the industry is going, if that makes sense? Um, I don't think shock. I, I, I think anytime you come out of um, a new CBA, a, a lot of people feel more comfortable making big, bigger commitments because they know that there's some certainty for the next five years about, you know, about relative peace in the, uh, in the industry. And I, I think there are times there are, there are moves that sort of, um, I don't want to say confuse, but there's, there are moves that are more surprising than others, right? Like there are moves where, you know, when Aaron judge signs for a lot of money with the New York Yankees, it doesn't exactly make your head spin. Right. Mm-hmm. But there's other moves where you're like, well, that's, that's not what I was expecting, or that's not the team I expected, or that's not the contract that we would have guessed. And, and that's just part of, part of 30 teams competing and trying to figure out how to best allocate their resources to, to improve their teams. I'll finish you off with this. Like my take on the Cardinals is there's a lot of question marks because there's not a lot of guys outside of Goldschmidt, Arnato, Edmund, and Contreras that have year-over-year year track records. Like Tyler O'Neill had a really good year. Lars Nootbaar had a really good half-season last year. But these guys have not have these multi-year track records. But there's also a lot of optimism about so many guys, whether it is O'Neill or Nootbaar or Carlson or Gorman. Like, so many guys. I'm excited to see if these guys are going to kind of take that step forward and, and become those consistent big leaguers. Are uh, in the uh, this is a long question, but do you get excited about that? Like, are you really excited to see well, some of these guys that don't have those track records if they are able to take that next step? A hundred percent. I mean, I think it, in some ways this is like the ideal spring training for us in that we have a whole bunch of young, exciting, kind of up and coming type players, and it's also a WBC year. So you know, when you talk about we have we have a, a, a like kind of a smaller group of veteran players, like like they can't get much better than Goldie and Arenado, right? Like if you're gonna have if you're gonna have a small group of guys, like two MVP guys is a great way place to start. But those guys and Wainwright and Mikeless and a bunch of other players are gonna be are gonna be gone to WBC for some period of time in March, and so there's gonna be a lot of at bats to see what you know Alec Burleson or Jordan Walker, and there's gonna be a lot of innings for guys like Libertor and Connor Thomas and Graceffo and McGreevy. There's just there's a lot of a lot of players that we're excited to sort of see what 2023 brings for them. And, and not only is that true just in general, but it's true that in this spring training, they're set up to have opportunities, right? And I, we know that not all of them are going to hit in spring training and, and we can't, you shouldn't overanalyze, you know, 25 at bats or 12 innings in spring training anyway, but just the idea that we got a lot of exciting players who are going to get opportunities to, to sort of see where they stand is, uh, is fun and exciting. And it, it makes it that the, this season has the potential to have a bunch of new faces that sort of break out into the uh, into sort of that that tier that you said that tier that kind of repeats it for more than a year and that everyone sort of has confidence we can build around. He is Michael Gersh. He is the general manager of the St. Louis Cardinals. Joining us, Michael. Thank you so much for your time. No problem. Enjoyed it. That's Cardinals general manager Michael Gersh. A lot more coming up next. We'll hear from Cardinals broadcaster Ricky Horton here on the Cardinals Radio Network. It's the countdown to opening day show here on the Cardinals Radio Network. Theme tickets are on sale now and feature new themes and returning favorites, including Friends Night, Star Wars Night, Margaritaville Night, Grateful Dead Night, and much, much more. For details and a full list of dates, visit cardinals.com slash theme. We welcome back on to the show a former Cardinals pitcher, now a broadcaster that you hear right here on the radio network. It is Ricky Horton. Ricky, thanks for the time. How are you? I'm doing great, Matt. Uh, Great to connect with you. You know, talking about doing a countdown, I've been able to count down some of my 
off-season activities, uh, going from uh, baseball writer's dinner to winter warm-up to caravan to fantasy camp, and, I, and they're all done. That means next up, spring training. Tell me about the, uh, about the fantasy camp and how that was this year. Oh, my goodness. It was just a barrel of laughs, as it always is. And we had the largest camp ever, the largest number of alumni ever. There were 42 former players that came, Matt, and 154 campers and uh, 12 teams. We just had a great time. It was a, a week-long deal or just about a week-long thing. We had, a, we had our World Series, and John Costello's team repeated as champions, and they get rings and champagne. I mean, it really is a hoot. I mean, it's, it's kind of like an, immer- an immersion camp. Uh, we want them to feel like big leaguers. And so uh, we had uh, 40% new campers this year and 40% new alumni as well. Uh, and so it was a lot of new people there, and, and it was uh, it, it's always good for my soul. It really is a cool few weeks. You mentioned winter warm-up. You mentioned the caravan. I got to go on a caravan for the first time ever, and that was one of the most fun things that I've ever gotten to do. It was, it was such a blast. And uh, for Cardinal fans who are trying to get through the winter, these few weeks of the various oh. things that are going on, it's just amazing. Well, Matt, one of the, uh, several things I like about the caravan being back, first of all, means we're kind of moving past where we've been the past couple of years. We hadn't had the opportunity to travel to all these places where we have great affiliates and, you know, love the Cardinals and, and to actually get to see those fans in a place like, you know, Dyersburg and uh, Jonesboro, Arkansas. And, and so, I mean, it was really, you know, I love it. I mean, I've been on that particular trip several times in the past. Uh, but so so it's great to be able to kind of, you know, reinstitute this connection to, to those Cardinal fans. But. Uh, to me, it's a great chance to get to know the young players, too. So I spent, you know, spent three days with Jordan Walker and Tink Hens, and uh, they could not have been more professional in, in how they presented themselves. They're only 20 years old. Both those guys are number one and number two prospects. And, uh, you know, we, uh, I think, you know, it's, it's a good way for us to build some camaraderie so they have another familiar face uh, by the time they get to the big leagues. And they will get to the big leagues. Andre Palante was on mine as well. But here's one other point to make, Matt. During the year, often, when I'm – speaking into a microphone, and I'm wondering who's listening out there. I actually envision people from the caravan because I know those are the kind of real Cardinal fans. They're just, you know, uh, you know they're 8 to 80 uh, or more, actually, but, but they're, they're, it's a v- variety of kind of backgrounds for the folks that just kind of just love the Cardinals in, in small-town uh, Midwest. And so that's, it's a good reminder for me when I go on these caravans to what uh, – what our fan base really is. We got the news earlier in the week that Scott Rowland was selected for induction into the Hall of Fame. When you heard the news, what was your reaction? Well, my first reaction was, you know, well, I was elated for him, and I was able to text him and congratulate him and elated for him. But, you know, my, my, my kind of my subsequent thought was, it is so good that they're recognizing somebody that's a complete player because there's no question Scott Rowland's, because I care about defense. Anybody that's pitched in the big leagues cares about defense because you realize that that's how you win games. And, you know, we get enamored with the home run and the RBIs and, yeah, and the OPS and the, how far you can hit a ball, great. But, and, and, that's a, and that's a good thing. But Scott Rowland was a complete player. He ran the bases well. Outstanding fielder, great hitter. So he was the whole package. You know, I used to say, Matt, I haven't said it in a long time, and I hope folks have forgiven me for I used to say this, but, you know, I, I kind of didn't like it when we started putting what I used to call half players in the uh, Hall of Fame, guys that are DHs. It's like, yeah, DH is a half a player. Now that the DH is in the National League, I guess I have to watch my mouth. But but the point is, uh, Scott Rowland was not, by any measure, half a player. He talked about that, too. He said how much pride, not just, you know, we talk about his defense, but his base running. He talked a lot about his base running. In many ways, he's a throwback. And 
he was so big too. Like that's the th- when you when, yeah. when you go yeah. back and look. I mean, for him to make some of those plays moving forward down the line as big, he's a linebacker over there doing that. It's yes. just it's pretty incredible. Well, great athleticism and a little stockier, I would say, than Nolan Arenado. But you know, there's some similarities in terms of being a big guy that's extremely athletic playing third base. And Arenado, of course, uh, you know, maybe the best ever to play that position uh, at third base. And, and we're thankful that he's a Cardinal right now. But Scott Rowland. I mean, he's not far behind that. I mean, he was a phenomenal player, had a very strong, true arm, uh, and and was uh, was a tough player. I mean, he's part of his toughness is you know you think about his numbers, what they might have been had he not had uh, Alex Cintron run into him uh, on the base paths, and that hurt his shoulder and kind of curtailed some of the maybe the possibilities for him to play longer because uh, that was a problem that kind of plagued him a bit uh, for afterwards. But you know, you're talking about a tough player who ran the bases hard, and he was one of those throwback guys that, you know, when he hit a home run, you can cut the, put the clock on it, and he's got to get home faster than anybody because he, he just did it old school. That's the way he played. When you were playing, was is there a play at third base that any any third baseman that you ever had behind you, is there a, is there a play that you look back during your time when you were on the mound that that's the best play a third baseman ever made behind you? Well, I, I, Terry Pendleton made some extraordinary plays at third, and, and he made several. He was known for making that play over his shoulder down the left field line. And when you say, you know, down the left field line to fans of baseball in the last 10 years, uh, it might might miss some of the value because, you know, the foul territory used to be a lot more uh, room. Mm-hmm. And so for, for a corner infielder to make a play down the line, uh, you know, there was a, a that was a long run. Let's put it that way. Now they weren't shifting. You know, back in, in in Terry Pendleton's time, but Terry made one particular play where he went. I mean, he just turned his back, and it was kind of like you know, like a like a Willie Mays type play over the shoulder, running away. He just basically ran to a spot, looked up, and caught the baseball. And you know, I, I can't remember exactly who we were playing at the time, and I saw him do that several times. But there was one in particular where he went just way further than you would have thought humanly possible. Uh, to make a play like that, and that was uh, that was Terry at his best. I've been looking forward to talking to you because we've spent so much time this offseason. We're talking with uh, Ricky Horton. Uh, we talked so much about the rule changes, and somebody brought something yeah. up to me recently that I had not really thought of because we think about the throws over to first and how you know after you throw over there twice, you may not throw over there a third time because it may result in the, the runner being able to take um, take second. So I heard uh, Hannah Kaiser, who writes for Yahoo Sports, wrote this, and we had her on KMOX earlier in the week. She mentioned that there's some talk right now about not really throwing over to first a second time because that's going to eliminate the ability yeah. for a pitcher to even step off if, like, the game hurries up a little bit on them. Have you thought right, much right. about that? Yeah, I think that's wise, honestly. And, you know, I will say this, and, I, you know, I, I kind of thought there was a uh, – you know, I was really into throwing to first base. I'd throw to first base six times on a guy. If, if, like, I would do that with Tim Raines, let's say, because my thought was he's going to steal second anyway, so I might as well keep trying to get him. Or, you know, I might even try the balk move, trying to go, get as far to a balk as I can because he's going to steal second. So, I mean, that's the kind of guy you would do that with. But, but, but that's different than what I see from time to time. And I know fans don't love this, but it's, it's just a meaningless throw to first base. Mm-hmm. Max Scherzer does that all the time, and I'm not – you know, he's, one, he's the game's best pitcher, maybe. So I'm not picking on Max, but he'll just kind of turn and flip the ball to first, and they're kind of like, okay, was that necessary? I don't know that anybody really got anything out of that. I don't know if the runner got a, got fearful of anything, or you know, and yes, he's clearly got a better move than that. So it kind of it's going to stop that kind of 
phony move to first. Uh, but I do think, you know, the, the, the stress for a pitcher when you get ready to throw a ball and you start thinking, you know what, this baseball doesn't feel good in my hand for a slider right now. I got the wrong pitch, and I don't want to throw this pitch. What you do in the past is step off. And if you don't have that extra one, as you say, that could be, uh, could be a problem. You might end up throwing a pitch you don't want. So I, I like that thought of just, you know, you got one shot at him and then save the other one for that kind of situation. We're a couple weeks out from pitchers and catchers reporting. As you start making your way around spring training and watching things, what's the, what's the question or two that you hope to see answered the quickest? Well, you know, you, you want to see how healthy several Cardinal players are. To me, that's the thing. I watched Jordan Hicks throw earlier in the week when I was down for fantasy camp. I just kind of got a bird's-eye view of him. He, he was down there even, even last week during the fantasy camp. Uh, and you know, watching him throw a bullpen to Andrew Kisner, and I, it was kind of eye-popping. So is he healthy? Is Tyler O'Neill healthy? Is Dakota Hudson healthy? Is Jack Flaherty healthy? I mean, there's a lot of guys where you kind of go, wow, that'd be great if, but then you don't know. And so, uh, you know, the question I'd like answered is, is health of several guys, that everybody I just mentioned. Uh, but also I think a, kind of a key guy is, uh, you know, has Paul DeYoung made some strides uh, in the, in the offseason? I know he's, He's changed his stride, literally, and changed his leg kick. And I watched him hit as well down in Florida. And I know he's working like crazy to get back to kind of where he was. But, you know, he could be such a key addition, almost like getting a trade for a new player if Paul becomes uh, that guy again. So uh, I think those are a couple of things that I'm looking for, at least on the Cardinals side. He is Ricky Horton. You're going to hear him so soon, along with John Rooney and Mike Claiborne across the Cardinals radio network. Ricky, thank you so much for the time. If, uh, if we don't talk to you before I get down to Jupiter, we'll see you in Jupiter in a few weeks. You bet, Matt. Looking forward to it. That's Ricky Horton joining us here on Countdown to Opening Day. Up next, we relive a really fun day this past year. We've got our snapshot segment. That's next. Countdown to Opening Day continues after this on the Cardinals Radio Network. Countdown to Opening Day does continue here across the Cardinals Radio Network. Did you know the Cardinals Authentics is the only place that you can get game used and autographed memorabilia directly from the St. Louis Cardinals? Visit CardinalsAuthentics.com or visit the store on the first floor of Cardinals Nation inside of Ballpark Village. It is time for this week's snapshot as we go back to a game or a moment from this last season and we relive it together. Today, we are going to go back to April 27th as the Cardinals and Mets are wrapping up a series against each other. It was a three-game series. The Cardinals had lost the first two games 5-2 and 3-0 in that game two of the series. Uh, The Cardinals had hit the Mets a few times. In fact, three hit by pitches on that second game. And the Mets at that moment uh, were leading the league in hit by pitches at 19. That certainly will play a role in this game as it moves along. The starting pitching matchup in this contest, it was Steven Matz on the mound for the Cardinals and Carlos Carrasco making the start for the Mets. We will uh, jump ahead as we go to the third inning. It's a 4-1 lead for the Mets going into the bottom of the third, and that's when the Cardinals would really get things going. Tommy Edmond and Paul Goldschmidt have a a couple hits, and that would bring up Nolan Arenado. Edmond at third, Goldschmidt at second. One out and the pitch. There's a little looper in the right field. That's going to drop for a hit. Edmond scores. Here comes Paul Goldschmidt, and it's 4-3 New York. 
Nolan Arenado with RBIs 15 and 16. Arenado certainly would play a large role as this game would continue on. So the Cardinals get back within one run. It is 4-3 after putting up the two runs there in the third inning. And they would take the lead in the fourth. That inning got started with a Yadier Molina double and then Edmundo Sosa hit by pitch. So a couple on for Tommy Edmund. I don't know that the Cardinals are going to bunt here, but the Mets are sold out thinking they will with Tommy Edmund at the plate. First pitch to him is hit hard. Pass. Alonzo down the right field line. And that's going to score Yadier Molina. Sosa being held at third, and we're tied at four. The Mets playing for bunt got burned. That inning would continue on as the Cardinals would rack up hit after hit. Eventually, Corey Dickerson would come up to the plate with runners on. And the pitch to Dickerson is hit on the left side of the infield. It's going to be a tough play. Carrasco has it to throw to first. Not in time. Infield hit Dickerson. That drives in Tommy Edmond. And the Cardinals lead 6-4. to four. In all, the Cardinals had five runs on four hits in their half of the fourth inning, and they would take an 8-4 lead into the next half inning. In the fifth, it would stay 8-4 for a little while. The Cardinals would tack on a run in the sixth inning to make it 9-4. The Mets got a run back in the seventh. That made it a 9-5 game. The Cardinals get another hit, another run, I should say, in the seventh inning to make it 10-5. And that would be the score as the game would move to the bottom of the eighth inning. Mentioned earlier, all the hit-by-pitches throughout the the course of the um, through the series and for the Mets really all season long. Well, then Nolan Arenado was at the plate and we certainly had some fireworks. The first pitch of the inning up and in to Nolan Arenado with Johan Lopez going right after the Cardinal third baseman and there's plenty of parking going on right now and the bench is empty and here they come. Arenado throws Nito out of the way and there is a lot of shoving going on a big pile around the home plate area. Both benches in it. Some players are trying to pull some players away. But this has been boiling going back to last night with five hit batters. J.D. Davis was hit on the ankle by a pitch and then that one up and into Arenado sparked the ill will here in the bottom of the eighth. Andrew Kisner, by the way, would come in uh, with a 1-0 count, replacing Nolan Arenado, and uh, he would end up striking out, and the Cardinals would have that 10-5 lead as they would take that two at the top of the ninth inning, as Ryan Helsley would come on to uh, pitch for the Cardinals, and uh, Helsley would get a couple outs, and then he faced off against Starling Marte. Here it comes. Round ball up the middle of the infield. Backhanded by Edmund. He throws out Marte for a Redbird winner. The Cardinals salvage a game in this three-game series. Nelsley works a three-out-three down ninth inning with his ball game coming to an end. The Cardinals have won 10, lost seven, while the Mets dropped to 14 and six after the Redbirds beat New York 10 to five. So the Cardinals got the win, but certainly the storyline around this one was the incident with the hit by pitches and the benches clearing situation in the eighth inning. After the game, Nolan Arenado did speak to the media. This audio, courtesy of Valley Sports Midwest. I thought it was. I mean, I have a feeling it was coming. When it's in that area, I think that's more the problem. Yeah, that's the problem. Like, I get it. I get what's going on in this series, and it's part of the game. But a little high. 
I mean, I don't know. I don't know how close it was. It just it felt high. It just felt close. It was just high. So there's a way to take care of it, right? Without somebody up high, right? Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm not saying he's trying to throw it up there. It's just the ball got away, but that's the problem with that stuff, you know. But listen, it's unfortunate. You know, people, you know, it's, it's part. It's an unfortunate part of the game, but it is part of the game, you know. And it's uh, it is what it is. I mean, at the end of the day, they won the series. They played better baseball than us, and uh, it was good to come out with a win today, though. Was there a valve there for you to express your frustration with that, or you could, you could, you could, No, I mean, no, I just. I don't know. I just didn't like where it was at. You know, like I said, I figured it was coming. It is what it is. I just didn't like where it was at. Is that what you're trying to communicate to Lopez in that moment? Yeah. Just go lower. Do you know Lopez from the time you're Uh, Just face him with the Diamondbacks. You know, he's got a good arm. He's got a good arm with a good slider. I mean, they all got good arms over there, man. They're all really good, and uh, he's got a good arm, and... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Again, Valley Sports Midwest with the audio credit as they provide that audio of Nolan Arenado after that game as the Cardinals would come away with a 10-5 victory against the Mets on April 27th in what was certainly a very entertaining game with a whole lot going on. And that is this week's Snapshot on the Cardinals Radio Network. Countdown to opening day continues on, and Cardinals Nation is the official St. Louis Cardinals fan headquarters. Across the street from Bush Stadium, Cardinals Nation is the spot for food, family, and fun. While you're there, visit the authentic shop and the Cardinals Hall of Fame and Museum featuring the special exhibit celebration of 1982. Visit cardinalsnation.com for more information. Mike Claiborne's going to rejoin us in just a few moments from the Cardinals cruise. Right now, though, let's go ahead and do another giveaway. We've got another Cardinals calendar. These things are awesome. If you don't have one for yourself, you can get one at uh, your local grocer, or you can call the contest line right now. Call her number 8 at 314-955-1120. That's 314-955-1120. Call her number 8. You get yourself a Cardinals calendar. We'll take another break, and when we return, Mike Claiborne rejoins us from the Cardinals cruise. This is Count down to opening day on the Cardinals radio network. We are starting to put the final touches on this edition of countdown to opening day across the Cardinals radio network alongside of Mike Claiborne. I'm Matt Pauley. Claibs is on the Cardinals cruise. So where do you guys go next? What is the rest of your itinerary on this cruise? We've already been to uh, this little private island that Holland America owns. And by the way, they do an outstanding job uh, when it comes to service and just attention to detail. Uh, yesterday, we were in Grand Cayman. Uh, today, we're in Jamaica, and I think not tomorrow, the day after tomorrow. Because, you know, when you get on a cruise, Matt, you kind of lose track of time and dates. And then we have to go to Nassau, to the Bahamas, and then we come home. Uh, so we have one more stop. I think we have a sea day tomorrow, and then I think Friday um, we are in um, Nassau and what? then home on Saturday. Very good. And right after that, I mean, pitchers and catchers report in a, in a couple weeks. We've we talked about last week coming off the the winter warm up how the season has arrived. We're we're a couple weeks out, and I know players are already getting into Jupiter. We've essentially gotten through the off season, and and we're there. And, and you know, as we were talking last week, you know, there are players that are already in Jupiter, and I'm sure when I get back, there'll be even more guys that are kind of honing their skill, getting ready for spring training. Because, you know, and we were talking about this on the cruise, there was a time when you went to spring training and you would play yourself in shape. You know, you'd need two, maybe two weeks to get yourself ready to go. Guys who show up now are ready to go. And now with the WBC in play, uh, they're even more ready to go. And we were having this discussion 
Is the WBC better before the season or after the season? I, I think after the season, guys that burn out, they don't want to play. I think before the season, it gives them a chance to really kind of hone their skill. They're going to see better pictures. They're going to see better. And pictures are going to see better hitters. And you can work on some things. And one of the things we we're talking about is, you know, how major league teams will scout the WBC to see what guys are doing differently. So when they do face them, they'll know, all right, this guy's throwing a slider now, or he's throwing a, a cutter or whatever, or this guy's moved up in the batter's box a little bit more. There's a lot of things that go on that you can really be able to digest and, and, and plug into your own system. So when you do face these things, and now you're going to face everybody. You know, the, the sooner you see them, the more prepared you can be for when you do face them. Speaking of the WBC, how important do you think it is? Because there was so much made last year of Adam Wainwright and the tweaks that he made and how he felt like he finally got stuff figured out, but then he never got the opportunity to pitch in the postseason to see whether or not it was right. Is is him being able to go against high-level opposition in the WBC, how important do you think that's to him really kind of figuring out if what he said at the end, at the end of last season is really the case? Well, that's a good point you make. I think that's a great question, and, and I think it's important for him. Let's face it, if he goes to the WBC and gets it handed to him, he's got to think about it. You know, I mean, Father Time catches up to everybody with the exception of Tom Brady. <laughs> um, and I, I just think that he's got to be in a position where, okay, you, you, you told us that you had some mechanic issues and you weren't able to use them because you didn't play in postseason. All right, you don't have any excuses. Now season's on. Hey, look, man, you're facing some good players. And how you react and how you work, compared to your skill level at this age is going to be very important, very interesting. And I, I think that it's probably more important for him than a lot of people because of that fact. So uh, I'm anxious to see how he works. And then here's the other thing, though, Matt. I, you know, these teams have to be careful with usage. You know, I mean, you don't want to overuse a guy, and then all of a sudden he gets back to his team, he's not effective. So, you know, is he going to throw a couple of innings, three innings, you know, and we don't know how many games he's going to be involved in. And, you know, there's a lot of coordination that has to take place between the teams, the players, the coaches, pitching coaches for the teams. With, and they've got to have a plan. But I'm anxious to see him, and you make a good point, because uh, we heard the excuse, and so now we'll see firsthand. Yeah, I don't know if the Cardinals are even considering this. I don't think they are. But I know you've got that 26th spot on the roster now. Man, if I'm running a baseball operation, I really seriously consider going to a six-man rotation when you don't have off days. And I know you're going to lose some big innings from some of your top pitchers, but it always feels like teams that have a lot of starting pitchers, those guys are fresher at the end of the season. I just have to wonder, as, as there's all the data and all the analytics out there, how much conversation is going into trying to get pitchers as much rest as possible maybe in the first half of the season? Ali Marmo talked about that a little bit last year, and I know they kind of tinker with the idea. It will be interesting to see what they do because, as we were talking earlier, there's going to be a good player that won't make this team. Uh, and it's because we don't have space for them. But I think if you look at the bullpen and the extra arms you have, I would not be opposed to six-man rotation at all. Now, you're going to hear some grousing from the agents <laughs> because there'll be some guys who won't be able to make certain numbers if you're going into operation year, you know, that, that's really going to be interesting on how you try and justify your numbers when you didn't get as many innings as you thought you were going to get. So there's a lot of things that will go into that, making that decision. But I, I think it's something that we need to take a long look at. Hey, look, we already baby these guys enough as it is, okay? 
so doing the six man won't won't hurt anybody. And and let's face it, don't you want your guys better in the second portion of the season? Uh September, hopefully yeah. October. Uh and especially with if you're the Cardinals, I mean, okay, the only team in the division who I think made a legitimate improvement were the Chicago Cubs. Everybody just, you know, either taking a step back or they are who they are. So you probably could get away with it in this division. I'm not sure if you're in the National League East with the competition there, can you afford to try that? But then again, if you have the roster, if you're a match and you got two guys in Scherzer and Verlander, you probably do want to get them some, some nights off or some innings off. So I think it's team by team, the, the decision-making, but I'll be, it'll be very interesting to see what the Cardinals do because they will have a different pitching. Klaibs, thank you for your time. Uh, enjoy the rest of the Cardinals cruise. We'll do this again uh, next week, and, and we'll see you in Jupiter here in just uh, a couple weeks from now. Looking forward to both, and uh, stay warm, stay dry, and uh, we'll talk next week for sure. That's Mike Claiborne. I'm Matt Pauley. This has been the Countdown to Opening Day Show across the Cardinals Radio Network.